So, we've been in Jonah, and um, Jonah has four chapters. Uh, Jonah has four scenes. Each chapter is a different scene in uh, the narrative. And so, uh, Jonah 3 is the third scene. And we have Jonah, who's been swallowed by a fish. He's now been uh, vomited onto the beach. And uh, that's the scene we have tonight under our consideration. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we are thankful for your word. Yet again, you come to us, and Lord, you use this ancient text, and you bring it to life, and you apply it uh, in ways uh, to make us new people. Uh, Lord, that we were made in your image, and Lord, we have marred that image beyond uh, belief. That was our own doing. We have rebelled against you. Uh, Lord, you have pursued us, and you have stretched out your arm in kindness to us. Uh, that image might be restored and we might enjoy you like Adam and Eve did in Eden. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that we would taste Eden more uh, because of our encounter with you and your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I'm not much of a baseball fan. Uh, I'm a Reds fan. And to be a Cincinnati sports fan is a miserable existence. And uh, so the guy I'm going to tell you a story about, his name is Josh Hamilton. I know about Josh Hamilton because he played uh, a season for the Reds. Uh, Josh Hamilton is about my age. Uh, he's just, I think he's 36. And uh, he started his professional career in 1999. In 1999, uh, he was looked at to be a blue chip prospect. He was going to be a franchise cornerstone kind of prospect. And he was drafted with the very first pick. And he had a great first year. Uh, that first year, he just cranked it in the minors. He was really, really good as everybody expected him to be. But the second year, something happened. Now, the second year, his uh, parents uh, moved. They, they quit their jobs in his hometown of Raleigh uh, to join him on the road. And when they joined him on the road, they wanted to watch him play because uh, he didn't really have anything to do other than play baseball. Nothing was familiar to him. A lot of the guys on the team were a lot older than him, and they didn't have the expectations that he had. So his parents came. And shortly after they came to join him uh, during the season, uh, they were T-boned. Real bad car wreck. In the bad car wreck, uh, his parents were hurt worse than he was. They weren't killed. They were able to recover from their injuries, but they were hurt bad enough uh, that they had to go home, back home to Raleigh. Went back home to Raleigh, and they recovered there, and Josh Hamilton was left alone. He had a signing bonus, $4 million, at 20 years old, no parents, no baseball. And so he started, uh, he started doing drugs. He started cocaine. He started drinking a lot of alcohol. He had never had any alcohol, never done any drugs until after this car accident. But found him bored, found him depressed. Because the things that he had that were most central to him were now gone. And as the story progresses, the next four years, he never plays baseball again. Uh, his addiction has kind of got him to a place where it's real easy for him to get hurt. So he's hurt, he's hurt his legs, he's hurt his elbows. He's lost a lot of weight. And somehow in these four years, a woman decides to marry him, and they have a baby. And when they have the baby, she thinks, well, maybe after we have this baby, he'll finally clean up. Drug tests aren't working. He's failed over a dozen of those. He's been to rehab three times during this four-year stint. But maybe the baby's going to do it. Maybe if we have this baby, Josh will clean himself up. Well, after the baby's born, uh, he doesn't clean up. And she's angry, and she's so angry that she files a restraining order against him. And that still didn't clean him up. Somehow he hits rock bottom. 
when he hits rock bottom, he cries out for help, and he gets clean. He's clean for six months, and he decides he's going to write a letter to the Raleigh newspaper. Everybody in Raleigh knows who he is. He's a big name. If he writes a personal letter telling him how he's been clean and how he wants to get back in the game again, maybe somebody will notice and somebody will give him a chance. Well, somebody did. This barely professional team in Florida gives him a chance under these conditions. We're not going to pay you. Uh, you have to bring your own sleeping bag and cot. You can sleep, uh, you can, uh, sleep in the annex of the facility. Uh, you have to cut the grass, and you have to clean the bathrooms. Here was a number one pick in the draft with $4 million, and now he's cleaning toilets, but he's given a shot. And he takes, he takes advantage of it. He gets back in the big leagues. He starts with my Reds. My Reds did a stupid thing, and they traded him. And after they traded him, a couple years later, he wins the MVP. He goes to two World Series, and he relapses. 09, he relapses. 2012, he relapses. 2015, he relapses. And today, he's out of baseball. He's filed for a divorce with his wife, who he has four children with. And I read this story this week, and I thought, what would you do if you were the commissioner of baseball and Josh Hamilton sitting outside your office, and he says, I've been clean for three months. I went back in the game. What should he do? What would you do if you were his ex-wife and here your ex-husband shows up on your doorsteps and he says, I want you back. I want you, I want you back. I want, I want to be back with our girls. What would you advise the wife to do, the ex-wife to do? What about these fans? I mean, I, I feel a little hurt and I just had him for a little less than a year. But you had the Texas Rangers, you've got the, uh, you've got the LA Angels, who, and they've paid him a combined over $200 million dollars. What if he shows back up there to the fan base? What would you give them? He's, he's abused your goodwill as a fan. What would you advise him to do? And I think this is where we find ourselves with Jonah, isn't it? We're caught on one side that we're kind of warned by this guy who's uh, in some ways hit rock bottom. <laughs> that uh, not quite like Josh Hamilton. Josh Hamilton's a prisoner of his own addiction. And, and, and uh, Jonah's a prisoner of his own racism. And we're kind of like, wow, if, if, if God can build him back up, maybe he can build me back up. But on the other side, we're asking, well, when's enough is enough? When's tough love going to kick in here? When is he going to learn his lesson, really? We're asking this of Jonah. We ask this of Josh Hamilton because I think this is what we ask of ourselves. When is enough enough? And will God be gracious to me? And I think what we'll find out in Jonah is I think we'll find a God who somehow grasps both of those. So let's read our passage together. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from this violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The word of the Lord. So I really want to, I think we'll see the narrative unfold uh, in three parts. The first part is the call of Jonah, verses 1 and 2. The second part is the preaching of Jonah, verses 3 and 4. And the third part is the conversion of Nineveh, verses 5 to 10. So the call of Jonah, we see right there at the very, very beginning. Uh, verse 2 is almost identical. 3-2 is almost identical to 1-2. But the difference is, is that Jonah here obeys so clearly, Jonah, did not, he, did not, he had not worn out God's patience. The chance he squandered in chapter 1 has come to him a second time, and Jonah gets a do-over. God thinks he still has something to work with, even in this rebellious prophet. And I think this has everything to do with us this, this, this evening. I think many of us, the Word of God has come to us a second time. We have fled for Tarshish when he's called us to go to Nineveh. And this shame, it haunts us. Because we've slipped into an area of unfaithfulness in our marriage. We've gotten angry again. We're holding bitterness and hurt in our hearts instead of forgiveness again. We're discontent. We're where God has us in life. When we said that we were going to be content and we pledge contentment, but we fall again. So how can a holy and righteous God extend grace to us again? Well, the good news of the gospel is that the word of the Lord comes a second time. And if Jonah is not beyond the reach of God's grace, neither are you, friend. You get a redo. We see a redo in golf, a mulligan. We see that as acceptable. We paint our living room a color we think we're going to like. We end up not liking it. We, we paint it again. That's acceptable. We think that parallel parking is something I'm getting used to. Living downtown, we, we fail the first time, the second time, but then we get it the third time. But that's okay. But what if we really blow it? How can God let us, how can he let Jonah off the hook so easily? Well, it's because God's the one who absorbs the penalty. He's the one who absorbs the debt of our failure. He's the one who takes on the risk by calling Jonah again. Now, as a reader of the narrative, I'm asking myself the question, he's thrown up uh, by the whale onto the beach, beaches of Nineveh, and I'm thinking, is he going to ju just jump right back in to the water <laughs> and try to swim to Tarshish? What happens if, if Jonah just half-heartedly gives a sermon to all these people in Nineveh? Will God still use him? What will happen? If, and I don't know what, what would happen if, if those scenarios played out. But the narrative is very, very clear that God can work with a rebel, even a rebel like you and like me, 
to bring his salvation to people. It's the call of Jonah a second time. And then he starts to preach in verses 3 and 4. We saw where disobedience got him when he refused to preach to Nineveh. It got him into a storm. It got him in the belly of a fish of a whale. But obedience gets him to a much better place. And I think the response is shocking because he gets every preacher's dream response. The Ninevites take God's word seriously and they repent and they believe God. You see that right there in verse, uh, right there in, 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 in verse four, they believed God. It's shocking. Here you've got a stranger, a foreigner has shown up on, a, a foreigner, Jonah, from Israel, from Israel has shown up on enemy soil in Assyria, and, and the news that he pronounces is doom. And they repent. They take God's word seriously. Well, another place in the scripture, Jeremiah chapter 26, Jeremiah shows up to his own people, believers, not pagans like Jonah did. He shows up to believers as a prophet, just like Jonah. And you know what they do to him? They don't uh, accept his word. They don't take it seriously. They arrest him. And they throw him in jail for treason. So what's the difference between Jeremiah and Jonah? Was it that Jonah was a really good preacher and Jeremiah wasn't? Is that where the difference in results can be found? No, the difference in results is found in the sovereignty of the Lord. Jonah's preaching brought revival because God thought it was a good idea. Uh, This past week, Monday to Thursday, I was in Sandusky, Ohio, the center of the world. Uh, If you've never been there, uh, I was there with Campus Outreach, one of our college ministries here. They asked me to speak, and uh, I was just kind of roaming around the property uh, before I was going to speak. And they said, uh, said, what are you speaking on tonight? I said, well, I'm speaking about the church. And I was at a weak moment. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm, I, I literally print out the exact same manuscript of the exact same talk that I did three years ago here in Sandusky. And, uh, and they said, oh, that's not a big deal. I mean, nobody who was here three years ago is here again this year. And anyways, I mean, even if they were here, they probably don't remember it. And I thought, well, thanks. Uh, they tried to console me afterwards. I laughed. And, um, but it got me thinking, what's the mark of good preaching? Is it that people can remember what you talked about seven days or seven years later? Jonathan Edwards, he's one of the first and uh, one of the most famous theologians in American history. Um, He says this about preaching. He says the main benefit obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind in the time of it and not by the effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. I'm going to read that again. The main benefit that is obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind in the time of it, and not by the effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. So in other words, the impression on one's affections during the preaching event is what matters. It's not a recalling of information at some point in the future. Because the point of preaching isn't to download a bunch of information. The point of preaching is to rearrange our loves. And this kind of preaching does not have to be skillful in order to rearrange our loves. Look at how skillful Jonah's sermon was. All he says is, 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I think that might be the worst gospel presentation I've ever seen in my whole life. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of why a disaster is going to come. And there's no mention of how they're supposed to deal with this disaster. But somehow God uses this rebellious preacher with this incomplete message to bring revival to Nineveh. I think for me and you, that means that God can use us to deliver his word. I think it means that our, if our living's not up to snuff or if our theology is not as robust as it should be, God can still use us. We don't have to wait for us to become more holy. We don't have to wait for ourselves to be more theologically astute in order to get started in sharing the gospel. The gospel. It's not about you anyways. It's about the God who seeks after those who are in your life. He can bring about revival through us, just like he did Jonah. But it doesn't use this word revival, does it? This is where we get to see the conversion of Nineveh, the revival that happens here. And when we think about revival, we usually think about a meeting, don't we? In preparing for the sermon, uh, I listened to another preacher preach this text, and he said, um, and he was talking about revival, and he said that, uh, that he had saw a sign that said, Revival gave an address on Tuesday and Thursday. And he asked the question, what's wrong with Monday and Wednesday? See, what he was trying to say is that revival is not something that we can contrive. Not something we can contrive on a corporate level. It's not something that we can contrive within ourselves at an individual level. But that's what we think, isn't it? We think if we have the right preacher, the right band, the right song, the right book, that somehow revival will come to us. But that's not, whatever, that's not what happens ever in the scriptures. What happens in the scriptures is that God decides to bring a revival and it happens. Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah, starts reading from the book of the law, revival breaks out. King Josiah discovers the law, the first five books of our scriptures. It starts being read publicly, revival breaks out. Acts chapter 2, what we read earlier. God, through, through Peter and Peter's preaching, revival breaks out at Pentecost. And what we find here in this instance in Nineveh, that nothing was contrived here. It was just in the mind of God that he had Nineveh in his sights and he was going to use a rebel as his preacher. But if revival is brought about by God, what can we expect? What's it going to look like if revival breaks out? And I think we see two things in our text. Uh, the first thing is that revival is always humble in its character. And the second thing we see is that it's always extensive in its application. So it's humble in its character. You see here that, like you do in many places in the, uh, in the scriptures, that they put on sackcloth and ashes and they fast. And this sackcloth and ashes, I mean, think, uh, think potato sack. That's what they're wearing. And what it symbolizes for them is it symbolizes self-humiliation. It symbolizes extreme discomfort as a means of expressing their submission to the correction of God. I mean, think about how awful you would look if you walked around in a potato sack. It would not look good. It's not flattering on any of us. Think about how uncomfortable it would be as you have, if you have this material scratching your skin. I mean, you, really, you'd be scratched everywhere. But what they were trying to say on the outside is, this is what's going on the inside of me. My inside does not look flattering. And I'm aware of that. That's why I'm wearing this. My inside is uncomfortable 
just like this sackcloth is uncomfortable. Because the Ninevites, they're under deep conviction of sin. They aren't excited about what God's doing in their life. It's necessary, it's good, but it's sorrowful. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul talks about two different kinds of sorrow. He talks about a sorrow that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to salvation. The sorrow that leads to death is like the sorrow of Judas. You remember Judas? Judas betrays Jesus. And when he betrays Jesus, he feels bad about it. He's convicted about it. He's not patting himself on the back. He's, he's got some contrition about him. He has a sorrow, but it's a sorrow that leads to death. But then there's a sorrow that leads to life. There's a sorrow that leads to salvation. There's a sorrow that's, that, that, ends in, that starts in repentance and then ends up in salvation. And this is the kind of sorrow that's characterized here by the Ninevites. They have this sensibility of the weight of their sin. They have a sensibility of the holiness of God to such a degree that they no longer are going to trifle with God. He's not somebody to be messed around with. He's somebody to take seriously. And friends, when we are, when we really mourn our sin, and when we really mourn the sin of our community, we're humbling ourselves before God. And when we're really humble in this kind of way, we don't see it as God's job to forgive us. Might sound strange to you, doesn't it? But look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is the king talking here. And he's framing his decree in such a way that he's giving freedom to God to decide what the outcome of Nineveh is really going to be. He knows that just because Nineveh is repented does not mean that God's not going to move forward and wipe out this city. And that's what humble people do, isn't it? They don't presume upon God's grace because they're clearly aware of God's holiness and they're clearly aware of their own shortcomings and sin. I think humility might just be the number one sign of revival. This is what, I know this is Jonathan Edwards again. I've never said Jonathan Edwards from this pulpit. I don't read him a lot. But the, out of some reason, I got two places for Jonathan Edwards tonight. And Jonathan Edwards, um, he was part of the first great awakening, the first great revival that happened in America. Most church historians would say there's been two major uh, revivals that have happened in our country. First one was in the 1700s, the second one was in the 1800s. And this first one that was in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards was like the scribe of the revival. He, he wrote vigorously materials that were, that were distributed uh, to the different ministers, the different churches across New England. And one of the questions that he was trying to answer was, how do you know when real revival has come? And in one place he says this, gentleness and genuinely self-renouncing humility are far better evidences of true saintliness than mere intense experiences. He says, if you've got gentleness and you've got self-renouncing humility, that's way preferable over intense experiences. That's what he's saying. So it's a mourning over sin. It's a trembling before God. And it's a willingness to serve other people. Those are the real evidences of revival. And this is what I long for in my life. 
This is what I long for for my family. This is what I long for for you. And this is what I long for for our city. It's for a gentleness to pervade us regardless of our position. Whether you're a child, whether you're a student, whether you've got some big-time job or you've got three part-time jobs, there's a gentleness about you. There's a gentleness about me. I, I pray that there's a self-renouncing humility, that we don't see our money for ourselves, but we see our money for other people, that we're willing to renounce our possessions for the sake of others. That kind of humility. I think that's where real revival comes from. I think real revival comes when we tremble on our knees before God. I pray that happens for us. But God's going to be, he's going to have to be the one who brings that about. That's a sign of revival. I think the the other sign that we see here is is that it's extensive in its application. Look at all these different places. Let's start in verse 5. It says that they believed God. So first sign that's extensive in its nature, it's theological. Also in verse 5, the least to the greatest respond. So it's extensive in that it includes all socioeconomic peoples. Verse 6, it reached the kings and the nobles. So rural revival touched touched the area of politics. Verse 7, it affected, um, when it starts talking about the beasts and the animals, uh, you know what happened to the beasts and the animals? That that was the main economic engine uh, for the ancient Near East. And so when they didn't feed them, uh, guess what they didn't have as much of? Economic product. They lost money when they did that. So it affected their economics. And then we see it changes their behavior. They had to turn from their evil and their violent ways. So it was extensive in its application. And so if revival comes knocking at our door, friends, everything's going to be up for grabs. A whole lot more is going to be up for grabs in revival than 90 minutes here on Sunday and 30 minutes before you go to work or class. It's going to affect every minute of your time. It's going to affect every dollar that you spend. And it's going to affect all your talents. That's what revival's about. It's not just about an emotional affection. It's about everything in your life and in our society. That's when we know revival comes. But let me get back to verse 1. Jonah's thrown up on the banks of Nineveh by this big fish. And you're asking, you've got to stop right there at verse 1 and think, what are Jonah's options here? <laughs> What's, how is he going to relate to the Ninevites? Well, I think one of his options is that he can be vengeful. He could say, all right, these people oppressed, uh, oppressed my people. I'm going to spy around them, collect a bunch of information. I'm going to go back to my people, and we're going to plan an attack. He could have done that, because that's what vengeance does, isn't it? Is that it says that you hurt someone else as much or more than they've hurt you. That's what vengeance does. The other thing I think he could do, I think he could, he, he could practice resignation. He could say, all right, I'm standing here on the banks. Okay, I need to let bygones be bygones. Let it go. Forget about it. I can't undo what's already been done. But I think if he were to resign, and when we resign, we don't really confront the evil that's in front of us. And what usually ends up happening is that we ignore the wrongdoer altogether. We ignore them because we hate them in our heart, though it might not look like it on the outside. So when that happens, superficiality wins. When vengeance, when when we choose vengeance, evil wins. When we choose resignation, superficiality wins. And they seem like they're totally different, don't they? 
Jonah's posture as in vengeance and Jonah's posture in resignation are very different. But what they have in common is that they both exclude the wrongdoer. But there's a third option for Jonah. You see it in verse 10. We see God practice it. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. See, the vengeful, uh, they deal with their anger by dealing with the wrongdoer. The avoider ignores their anger altogether. But forgiveness says that we're going to deal with the hate in our hearts before we deal with the one who's wronged us. See, dealing with our anger, it's going to require us to absorb the anger within ourselves. We've been inflicted with the pain that someone else deserves. That's what happens when we choose forgiveness. But it sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Remember Jesus? Remember Jesus, just days before he's crucified, he's up on the mountain, he's overlooking Jerusalem, and the text says that he wept. Think about it. Jesus is weeping over his future murderers. Jesus is choosing to forgive and absorb the pain that they deserved. And he also has you in mind. He looks over the mountain at your life, and we are his enemies. And he's chosen to forgive us and absorb the wrath that we deserve from the Father for our sin. And he did this. He took on this violence. He took on this wrath so that our hearts might be warmed to include those who have done violence to us. He's done that so that we might not lash out in vengeance and then so that we might not avoid in resignation. I heard a, a Tim Keller he told a story of a guy who's, um, fiance, about a, fian, a, a guy who, whose fiance called off uh, their wedding shortly before they were to be married. And he told the story and read a part of this guy's letter. And in the letter, uh, the guy uh, who had been broken up with, uh, he wrote the letter to explain how he dealt with the pain that he experienced during this time. And in this letter, he wrote, I paid the price in small sums over the period of roughly 18 months. These small sums included not rehearsing the past, praising her to others when I wanted to criticize her to others, and not going into self-pity when I saw or heard of her being with another man. She, the fiancé, former fiancé, she never knew of these payments. But I knew she made payments too because I wasn't completely innocent. Do you hear the echoes of forgiveness? Jonah forgave the Ninevites. Jesus forgave you. So who do you need to forgive? Where can you track your anger and your bitterness? See, when we sustain our bitterness towards someone else, what we're saying is we're better than they are. We're saying, in effect, I would never do what they have done to me. But friend, don't you remember the grace that was extended to you in the gospel? And Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18 
of, uh, there are three characters in the parable. There's the king, there's the nobleman, and there's the servant. The nobleman owes the king what's equivalent to about $8 billion. Significant debt, right? Um, $8 billion. And the king calls the nobleman into his court. The nobleman thinks, for sure, I'm going to be thrown to prison at best, or I'm going to be, pers- or I'm going to be executed at worst. And he walks in the courtroom, and the king does the unimaginable. And he says, your debt has been forgiven. The nobleman leaves the courtroom, goes back home, finds his servant, who owes him $10,000, and orders him to repay it. The servant can't repay it. So the nobleman throws him into the prison. The king gets word of the nobleman's pettiness. And he's angry. And so he throws the nobleman into prison. The story ends there. And Jesus closes it with these words. He said, so also my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, when we see the debt that we have before God, when we see that debt as infinitely greater than the debt that anyone has against us, it changes who we are. And it frees us to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... um, we need your grace. Uh, Lord, forgiveness is very, very hard. Uh, Lord, revival is impossible. So without you, uh, we really are sunk. And we're asking you to save the day yet again. In Christ's name, amen.